So uh, th- this is the 11th section of, uh, or 11th session of the Stafford Beer Brain of the Firm reading group with General Intellect Unit. Uh, and this time we are going to review the, the previous sections of the book that we have discussed uh, as sort of per beer suggestion. Um, and because we have had new members join in over the course of the reading group and because we just need to do the review for ourselves uh, as we get into the sort of more practical dimensions of the text. Um, so we'll start out at the beginning, uh, page three, the summary of part one. Uh, so it says, uh, we begin chapter one by trying to understand what is special about today's managerial problems. There does indeed seem to be something unique, and it has to do with the rate of change. It could be that the lags in our systems of implementation are longer than the average interval of new technological impacts. If so, there is bound to be trouble. The tool which we might have co- uh, which might have coped with this problem, because it is fast and flexible, is the electronic computer. But we have not understood how to use it. This book is about what to do next. We need a new insight, which the science of cybernetics can provide. I like to see straightforward English whenever possible, but I have not been able to write this book without introducing some new terms. They are there to name new concepts or concepts which come from other sciences. Um, So that would be the contents of chapter one, uh, essentially laying out the problem of uh, accelerating change uh, as a result of technological change. Um, I think we're all fairly familiar with that concept today. (laughs) It's quite an imminent and obvious uh, issue. Um, But does anyone have any sort of like looking back on this uh, premise thoughts to bring up? All right. Um, Well, I think we'll we'll leave that as being quite obvious. Um, And I think, you know, we can definitely say, oh, you know, but the problems we're facing today are like governance problems or they are uh, epidemiological problems. But it only takes a very slight scratching behind uh, beyond the surface to see the ways in which technology have uh, has fostered these problems. Right. So, um, you know, our transportations and logistics networks uh, or, you know, the uh, degree of surveillance and military technology we see in uh, policing, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Shane, go ahead. I think there's maybe another tiny thing to kind of emphasize here that I think your focus is on the rate of change because, um, like self-organization and homeostasis is kind of an ordinary trick. Like it's a, a system stabilizing itself in the present is a kind of parallel trick that a lot of systems can do with the fucking self and do it. Um, but it's, it's the stabilization over time and in the face of rapid, uh, divergent change is the kind of the real, the meat of the problem. So for beer, it's, it's not so much that managing, managing the first order activity is fairly trivial because stuff just does it anyway. Managing the second, third, fourth, fifth order, like derivations and activities is where the real interesting stuff gets. You know? Right. And we saw in studying system four that that is really essential to being able to cope with rapid change. Um, 
So it's, it's a key point of what we're going to talk about. Um, all right. So uh, next uh, we go to chapter two. Um, if chapter two is read carefully and the reader doggedly refuses to be put off, he will be armed with the first set of the tools he needs. There is a special glossary of cybernetic terms at the back of the book so that people can refresh their understanding if necessary. You may well find that these strange terms soon become old friends. They deserve to be, or I should not have bothered to introduce them. Uh, so were there any terms that came up in recent chapters or in your readings uh, that were just uh, opaque and hard to understand? I guess aside from like the nitty gritty of the uh, anatomy that we we discussed um because this is the this is the chapter where we see things like afferent efferent uh feedback uh these kinds of concepts that were brought up uh no okay oh uh jake please go ahead yeah i have to say i'm still not sure if i totally have down and I know you're not supposed to totally have them down pat exactly, but um, the notion of filtering exactly. Um, <laughs> might be because it's been a little while since I refreshed myself on it, but it's to do with variety in meta-languages I think we were talking about at the time. Um, but um, it keeps slipping my mind, that one. Um, yeah, so that... That uh, issue about meta-languages comes up in a later chapter, uh, but um, the more sort of fundamental stuff about filtering uh, has to do with, you know, Ashby's Law of Requisite Variety, um, which, if I remember incorrectly, means that you have to have at least as much variety as the system you're dealing with in order to cope with it. Um, uh, and... If you don't have filtering that is like variety attenuation, you just leave like you end up with sort of catastrophic increase in the amount of variety you need to deal with your situation. So you, you need filters that simplify the situation uh, to a degree that you can actually cope with or the system in question can actually cope with so that it's not getting overwhelmed. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, we can relate this to our, our usual sort of empirical uh, sensory kind of filters, right? That like when we when we think of color, uh, like in our minds, we've got maybe, I don't know, 25 colors that we can kind of like immediately recognize without having to look it up in the table or whatever. Um, or like, you know, shades of blue are in chunks basically for, for us and it's kind of like in our cognitive layer. But the, the actual material reality of what constitutes color is a truly limitless like spectrum it's like the real numbers you pick any two points and there's always something new in between them and this is just like you can't deal with all frequencies of light it's impossible um you have to be able to make a judgment as as an organism as a system that's actually trying to live in the world you have to be able to make a snap decision of like is that rustling over there in the bushes a tiger or a ferret like and it has to happen very quickly and that just means that you can't contemplate every possible wavelength of light or every possible motion it's just it, it's it's impossible so this kind of like transcendental empiricism is just a general feature of the world like it's not just our minds that do it every everything does it everything is insufficient with with relation to everything else in terms of information processing 
Um, so fil filtering happens naturally. It's not even an active process that one, one decides to filter. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's usually something you don't get much of a choice in. It's just the, the structure of the world and the structure of the organism forbids total information. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, um, I, I feel like um, uh, he uses filter in like like a couple of ways. So like I remember there was one that that like um, you know uh, it sounded like um, you know by filtering he was it was kind of more of a reduce. Like you know he's talking about uh, taking uh, taking a mean or something and like uh, but like yeah well, like but it's also chunking. You know it, it's like how. Uh, you know, you'll read old timey texts and they refer to every single grain as corn, you know, which, which is maybe kind of maddening, you know, as, a as like a 21st century, like historian trying to figure out exactly what they were growing. But I mean, like for their purposes, like, you know, like it actually works. So. Uh, yeah, there was definitely a discussion of like compression that uh, came up in the book. Um, that was uh, an another sort of filtering method that uh, Buer discussed. Uh, so, Jake, uh, please go ahead. Um, yeah, another thing that just brought to mind that um, I think you were saying that, Kyle, is, or at least related, like, a couple of times has come up, like, what time period the system's operating on, like, whether or not it's, like, minutes, seconds, or centuries, or whatever, right? And I guess filtering is also relevant in that, um, like, like, the extent to which you could do filtering, the like, the extent to which the variety that you're trying to attenuate um, like if you're in an interactionary situation, for example, <laughs> you would have less time to be um, filtering, I guess, and that would change the maybe the quality of your the like qualitativeness of your system. Like it would be a different system operating on that level. Yeah, exactly. Like we can see today, um, you know, with the uh, street fights, the revolting that's happening, uh, the protests. Um, the mode that people are engaging with the situation is a lot less contemplative than it might otherwise be. But th that's basically a necessity that is derived from Ashby's law, right? Because you have to be more attentive to the immediate situation if the immediate situation is what matters, right? Like you can't, you know, just abstract everything when it's a question of do I need to go up the street or down the street to avoid being arrested? Um, so that that kind of thing makes a lot of sense. Like you might accuse, people might accuse the protests of being too in the moment and not contemplative or deliberative enough, but like you can kind of understand the necessity if you look at this variety stuff. Um so uh, we'll go to Jake and then Steve. Uh, yeah. Jake H, right? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jake H. <laughs> I think he might have dropped a second. Yeah, I think Jake's probably out. So uh, Steve, uh, go ahead. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, like, going off on what Kyle's saying... <clears throat> I mean, there's two things. So, like, one, like, finding that way of doing the filtering, you know, as it relates to the meta-language question, right? So what we really want here, right, is to be able to abstract the complexity to the appropriate representation that we can communicate uh, via the meta-language up the stream and down the stream, right? And um, 
you know, that's, that's obviously a challenge and in many ways, like depends always on the specific things upstream and downstream, but like relating it to the current unrests, you know, I think it's, it's interesting that as we struggle collectively to figure out what the appropriate narrative is here, you know, there's so many ways that people are trying to reduce, well, I'm, you know, in, in a good way, in, in a sense, like reduce what's happening to the sort of sloganeering we need to actually like make an exact change and win people over to what we're saying. Um, you know, I think the most effective representation of communicating this seems to be, you know, like in to a lot of people, all these 10 second videos of cops being assholes that are uh, uh, being shared on on media. But like, you know, beyond that is defund the police, the right representation and filtering that we need to like communicate to people. Is it, you know, something more specific? Is it um, the very abstract and, you know, and probably meaningless ways of, you know, the way that you're going to hear it from the top, like our mayor here in Houston and stuff like that. Like, you know, we need to all, you know, all just the meaningless platitudes that it's so easy to fall into. Like that's not an effective representation to communicate anything that will lead to anything. Right. But there's pressure for it to be framed in that way. Um, yeah. From the top, so I don't know. Like it's interesting because I, you know, I don't know what the result, what the answer is here. But like how we frame and reduce the complexity of the chaos that's going on to something that can actually communicate an exact change. Um, uh, you know, we'll, who, how do we figure that out? I don't know. Right. Well, that's that's an interesting observation, right? Because it it shows that slogans have value in this point of time because when people are occupied with sort of the nitty gritty of organizing or protesting or revolting or whatever, um, the, the amount of sort of like extraneous information they can take in is quite limited. So slogans uh, do help with that in terms of sort of building common ground without a lot of explanation. Um, so, that, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, Jake H., uh, please go ahead. <clears throat> yeah, uh, sorry about that. My internet's being a little weird, but um, yeah, it's definitely like I mean, it's hard. It's hard to not think about the current unrest going on now, and like relating all this to that. Um, but just like just thinking about the way that the police lack the requisite variety to deal with the protests in any way other than violence. You know, like their first reaction is violence, and that's just causing continued protests. And so it's interesting to see if like if this will be the breaking point that uh, the internet gets this revenge again. Uh, may may not be the breaking point of the state, but it was the breaking point of that message. Um, so we'll have to uh, perhaps uh, uh, Jake, are you are you the back? Are you there? I'm back. Sorry, uh, I'm gonna move to another room in my apartment in a sec after I talk. But um, okay, yeah, just I don't I'm not sure where I cut out there, but uh, breaking uh, point. You were talking about the yeah, breaking yeah. point, right? Right. I mean, like you know, beer is talking talks about system needing to be able to handle all the requisite variety, or it destroys itself uh mm -hmm. let's hope that that's happening with the police i mean i'm not gonna hold my breath you know just based on like the history of capitalism but um I, I, it's definitely interesting and, and and also just thinking about uh you know the way that these protests are kind of like i mean people are concerned more with like how to get like how to do the things right and not so much about like the theoretical backing of it but but that what that means is that there are opportunities to like figure out solutions to like the problem of, of requisite variety or of of condensing down the variety of like here are all these people protesting 
how do we condense it into useful information so that other people can join them or people don't get arrested? Um, I think that's an interesting thing. I mean, I'm just in my organization, we're just using like a bunch of signal chats, which is useful because it's quick and it's encrypted, of course, but there is a ton of variety. You know, there's like, you know, I look away for a few hours and there's like a hundred messages, um, which is good. It means people are doing stuff, but it's like tough to keep it going. Um, and so I, we've, we've got people who are like concerned with communication and are trying to communicate that to sort of a broader range of people who aren't necessarily like in the signal chat as like, just like using the mass texting software. Um, I'm just like, Hey, we need people at X, Y intersection or just like tweeting out, Hey, there's cops coming down uh, the street. Like don't go down the street, you know? Um, and so I think Great. it's an interesting way that it's just sort of self-organized. Yeah. I mean, you need people like doing like this sort of system uh, two and system three coordinating work. Uh, and you also need people doing the system four work in terms of like looking forward, looking out at the immediate context. Um, all these things are important. Uh, okay, so Brett, go ahead. Well, and also with the signal thing, there's also the um, issue of like using the Black Lives Matter hashtag and people can't find anything because it's all like a bunch of black images. Um, but it was also worse that we sort of started off this chat talking about, it also works on the other end of just like blasting K-pop videos at police and they don't know what to deal with it. So they just cut these systems down because they can't, they don't have the system to deal with it. But it feels like anyone who has the most variety is the one who ends up overwhelming the system. I don't, I don't know. Uh, it, so, um, I think, you know, we can look at this sort of tactically and you see that. It's it's not so much the one that has the most variety that wins. It's usually the one that has the best attenuation that wins. Uh, you look at the Roman legions and how they were able to win again and again against larger, you know, uh, Germanic or other uh, outside forces just because of their organization. Um, uh, and but having a certain amount of variety is necessary. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, Shane, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, just to, to bring it in before, because I'm aware that it was a thing that was in the next channel, and just to bring it here because I think it's extremely relevant. We were discussing the um, firing motion strategy, and I think it was, it's a fairly old military strategy. But I think it's it's an interesting implementation of like balancing this thing of like actually actively using variety against the enemy. So that the basics of the strategy is that you use suppressing fire to get the enemy to keep their head down. And you're not actually aiming to hit them. You're just firing wildly so that they have to stay in place while you move. Um, now, I first came across this concept uh, through Joel Smolsky, who's a software engineer. He's a, he used to work at Microsoft and that sort of thing. And he observed that it's basically what Microsoft does. They deprecate an API or they re-engineer a toolkit basically every week so that all people who are developing on the Windows platform spend half of their time keeping up with the bullshit changes and spend less of their time developing a competitor to Microsoft Office. Um, the same goes for Google when they are um, they get to call the pace of browser development, meaning that Mozilla have to play catch up constantly because Google are generating new ideas for bullshit APIs on the web, and they're implementing them fast and fast and fast. So I think it's a mixture of both, right? I think Kyle has it on the money that it's the, the the system that's better able to balance itself against its environment tends to win. But those systems can then act, actively deploy variety and chaff and noise and, and just, I think, what, what was Steve Bannon's thing, like flood the zone with shit or something? 
as a way of keeping everyone else's head down. Um, so that's a, it's a very interesting kind of double pincer strategy. Right. So in terms of fire and move tactics, the most obvious example I can think of out there is XCOM. So if anyone's played XCOM, you're very familiar with this tactic because that's all the game is. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, like that kind of flooding thing, um, it can be can be quite effective, uh, certainly. So um uh, I was thinking there of the way that the IDF uh, adapted Deleuze and Guattari to develop, uh, you know, uh, new tactics about basically destroying the organization of the enemy by re recreating urban spaces through just like um, violence um, so that, you know, their, their previous organization would be disrupted. It, it creates noise in their system, right? Uh-huh. But even at that, they had like a high variety a strategy of like just moving through walls, and suddenly yeah. you thought they were coming through the front door, and now they're fucking behind you already. Like that's high variety itself, you know. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so that gets back to sort of like Boyd, um, and like outpacing your enemy uh, being a, a key component of victory, but. I feel like we need to do a separate boy reading group. Uh, I, I don't think we can cover that here. Um, okay, so let's move on because we, we're, we're on the clock and, and we, we should move on. Um, so uh, next chapter three, we start to use the tools. Here, the really fundamental problem of management is discussed and analyzed. It is the problem of complexity, how to measure it, how to manipulate it. We think of our problems as concerned with such things as men, materials, machinery, and money, and their interaction. It is just that interaction that causes the difficulties, and we must get at its nature. We must also get at the nature of the way huge numbers of states in a system soak each other up, which is the subject of Ashby's Law. It turns out that organization exists precisely to implement that cybernetic law. Uh, there's much more about this later in chapter 15. I feel like we just discussed that, so we should probably move on. Uh, by the end of chapter 3, the fundamental reason should be clear why things cannot be organized down to the last iota, and why, in human terms, we should not even want to try. Of course, we all know that they cannot be so organized, that indeed an awful lot of things just organize themselves. But when we know exactly why, we can approach the problem of how. This is the subject of Chapter 4, the nature of self-organization in very large systems. By understanding these principles properly, we may well be able to facilitate regulation without imposing it. And that is something all good managers try to do. There are some more new words here, which experience again shows to be useful to managers, with an account of a deceptively simple little machine I call an algodonode. Uh, I have explained why in the text. Uh, so here we have this idea of sort of um, uh, very complex systems, or just the, the degree of the complexity of reality that comes up, which sort of proves that using this very... Um, uh this 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 attempt to provide a completely uh holistic and all-encompassing simulation of reality is a fool's errand 
and uh, something that we like is just physically impossible. Um, were there any sort of questions about this? Um, and then also we'll, we'll move on to the Alga node after that, I guess. All right. So about the Alga node, we talked about this last session. Um, but was, did anyone need a refresher on that? What it was? There is a glossary definition in the back. Um, so essentially this is like a fundamental core unit for filtering for attenuating variety, right? It's a way we can cope with a reality that is unfathomably complex and deep. Um, so I think that's the core point of that chapter. Uh, Rudy, please go ahead. So I have a thought about this. So the algorithm node is essentially a filter because it's supposed to be a filter or because it's a very low variety communication channel. So you're saying is the like design intent primary or is it a coincidence that it's like this? Yeah, kind of. Um, well, I think the Algata node was based on the synapse as an example, right? And so I think that like it's drawn out of a few paradigm cases. So it's it's in the first instance, it's a um, it's a model that's built off of empirical observation and then later deployed intentionally. Um, uh, okay, so Steve, uh, go ahead. Um, no, I guess kind of in response to that. Um, I mean, I think one thing that I see, keep forgetting that I think it's worth thinking about that I don't think is really like drawn out too much in this explicitly is that like, as Kyle was saying, it's like what we're really talking about is an adaptive filter, right? So it's adapting to the environment um, in order to do the filtering it needs to, but um, which is great, you know, but I think like framed through the example of the algorithm node that he talks about, you know, that he, that he gives as an example, like that doesn't have of the same properties that like the feedback loops that he talks about in chapter two do that they will be like, if the feedback is there, uh, eventually they will stabilize, right? Like we know that about the feedback loops um, mathematically and, you know, that's control theory and, and we understand that, but like this complex adaptive filtering mechanism with, you know, that he gives the example through with the whole wooden and copper strips and that stuff. Um, there's no guarantee that that will stabilize through adaptation to anything that's actually a useful filter. At least that's not, that's my understanding of it. Um, I don't get the sense that there's any guarantee that that will happen. And, you know, I think back to, um, the homeostat example from cybernetic brain, right? Like, was that like, oh, there just wasn't enough settling time or was it just that, you know, it wasn't hooked up appropriately correct such that it even could stabilize? Um, I suspect it's the latter, honestly, because there doesn't seem to be a big theory on like how you do this adaptation in a way that ensures that you get to homeostasis. And I feel like that gets lost with this comp this um, discussion of the algorithm node, but you know, maybe I'm just not understanding it. Right. Um, so I don't, so I think you're, you're, you're basically correct that, uh, 
the Algada node in any given instance is not guaranteed to stabilize. Uh, we did see in the last chapter we read, though, the way in which Beer tried to address this problem of stabilization, uh, right, which was by sort of reciprocal learning within the system. Um, uh, and that he argued was an advance over what Ashby was able to theorize. Um, so, uh, okay. Uh, let's go to Matt and then Shane. Yeah. I'm, I, 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 I think, um, yeah. Uh, th yeah, there, there, there kind of generally is, isn't really a, a guarantee, you know, that, that, that things are going to stabilize. You know, there's something kind of empirical, I think about, um, you know, like what kind of state and what kind of like specific, um, configuration is going to actually like, uh, let you uh, survive. I, I think it's part of why, you know, like uh, um, uh, so many species just actually just go extinct when, uh, you know, like there's a, there's a big change in their environment. And uh, I think it's also part of why, you know, like most, um, uh, you know, organisms are generally, you know, like once they, once, or in organizations, like once they've struck on something that works, like, you know, they, like they kind of want to keep doing that, but like, you know, because the, the, you know, there's no guarantee that, you know, like uh, uh, the next thing that they do, you know, the, even if they use the same process that they use to, to arrive at this equilibrium, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, there, there's no guarantee that, you know, like they're going to arrive on something that'll let them be nearly as successful in the new situation. Uh, yeah, I'm reminded here of an example. Uh, so I can't remember the exact period or the year. But I know that there was a period where the English tried to invade Scotland and the Scots came up with one useful tactic for beating the English. And they did manage to beat the English. But every time the English invaded Scotland after that, the Scots used the same tactic and were defeated every time. <laughs> So they they weren't able to adapt their tactics. They were just like, oh, but remember how how badly we kicked their ass that one time? That was great. Let's do it again. Um, so, yeah, this is just an example of that kind of sticking that happens. Uh, Shane and then Brett. Yeah, I think um, the, the thing of it being an advance over Ashby is really the important point there. But like the, the first generation cyberneticians and up through Ashby were more concerned with um, like a single machine with a single objective, and it converges on on the goal or whatever. Whereas by the time you get to Beer and later Beer, he's more concerned with these like open-ended exploratory kind of systems because like I think because I think the, the statement is ultimately correct that there's no guarantee that any given machine will converge in in, in finite time right or, or in, in in a timely manner. But that's kind of not really the point for organisms and for like metal organisms and so on because. Even if they try to converge on a certain point, by the time they get there, the goal will have changed anyway. Like the, the environment will have changed. So it's less useful to have homeostats that like Terminator style zero in on a particular point. It's much more useful to have these much fuzzier, more dynamic, open ended uh, meta homeostat assemblages that can like explore their futures. Um, so the, the lack of ability to converge on a particular point is, is, I mean, it's there, but it's, it's not really what beer is super interested in. He's more interested in the, the, the open-ended exploration of a, of a space. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's concerned with it to the extent that the organism can achieve homeostasis and the best ways to get there, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a um, guarantee because uh, there aren't really any guarantees in life except for, you know, death and taxes, I guess. But 
maybe maybe taxes maybe not we'll see uh, <laughs> uh brett go ahead and even there i mean he uses a lot of um this is sort of what i to bring up is he uses a lot of bodily metaphors and and the thing is um the body can get to a converge on a certain point where you don't really want that so uh, the autoimmune diseases. I have one. My body thinks that my, the vertebrae in my spine are a problem and it tries to calcify them. <laughs> and it's really good at calcifying things and I don't want that to be calcified. I would like to be able to move my spine. Thank you very much. Um, and this is, it's, it's just an example of a system that can sort of be very good at something and even be very good at, at open ending solving a problem, but it's like solving the wrong problem entirely. Right. Uh, so then conscious effort is needed to uh, move to a different homeostasis. Um, yeah, like striking, which is what I do a lot. Right. <laughs> the right. never happening, right? Totally, totally. Okay. Well, that's a very good example. Um, let's, let's move on to uh, the next section then. Uh, but why another new word? The answer is that no one has actually isolated this mechanism before, and therefore it has no name. We all know about it, but the intention of cybernetics is to try and make such vaguely understood tricks perfectly explicit and clear, so that we really know how to use them. In Chapter 5, the simple algodon node is used um, as a building block to construct a larger system, and the object of understanding that system is to uh, discover the lar uh, the meaning of hierarchy in organizations. Hierarchies are needed for fundamental reasons given in logic when big systems are becoming organized. When they are translated into human terms, they seem to be all about power and prestige, with the result that people lose sight of their real nature and meaning in the system. By the end of part one, we should have glimpsed a totally new perception of the nature of management and of how to approach this task of organization and control. Please do not despair if the practical relevance of all this is by no means clear yet. As the preface says, part one establishes some talk. We shall start talking this talk in part two. Uh, okay. Uh, Jake H., uh, you had something to say. Um, yeah, I think this kind of like gets to what was brought up, I think, like when we got to this chapter, maybe it was like after that, whatever, of, of how uh, beer just assumes like total control by the managers or by the people in the like who control the system uh, without like kind of giving any thought to what does that mean or like, like, what does that mean outside of the context of work or outside of the context of like capitalism, I guess, of just like what, like how to establish control in a way that's non hierarchical. But um, I also think like, like, I also agree with what he's saying in that, like, hierarchies can be just, like, they can be just hierarchies and they can be um, non-authoritarian um, is kind of like a vague word, but, like, it can be a non-punitive um, hierarchy or it can, it can, it can be a, a, a good thing, you know, not, not even in, like, an anarchist context, I guess. But, um, yeah, and just thinking about, like, something that I've, I've thought about a lot. I think from listening to the podcast of just like hierarchies will tend to emerge. And if you don't have um, a way for people to like, like if those aren't revealed to people like explicitly, then people will kind of be locked out just due to uh, those implicit hierarchies that form, like whether it's just like the hierarchy of social relations of just like, Oh, I'm more popular. Therefore I have more control over the system that you don't have. 
Um, and so I, I think that's something that like this all like cybernetics in general, I guess it has, has, uh, made me like, not, I guess reconsider more, just like think about more, but I, I think it's important. Yeah. So Bure is making a strong claim here that hierarchy is not simply, uh, desirable. Uh, it's, necessarily implied by the logical structure of reality um so we if if he's right we have to cope with that fact uh and like navigate that that reality um as for like his sort of approach towards like uh antagonisms within the firm or this kind of self-interested managers we get things asides here and there but what Jeremy was saying the other day, I believe, was that uh, he's kind of trying to covertly undermine the common sense of management uh, thinking in this book uh, by actually suggesting management structures that do not imply corporate dictatorship. Um even as he is addressing people who will be corporate dictators. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that's kind of the, the approach he's taking here. Uh, let's move on to uh, Matt and then Shane and then Jeremy. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, yeah, he, he, he's kind of, he's kind of like a, 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 maybe intuitively like, like touching on, you know, the, the social versus technical like division of labor, you know, like he, he's stripping out, okay, like what's actually necessary about these layers of abstraction. And, you know, like, uh, I really like having a good project manager. Like, you know, I don't want to have to, you know, like deal with like all this, you know, all, all these parts of an organization that like, you know, I don't uh, know their internal representations and stuff. I want someone to filter all that, uh, you know, uh, to me uh, in, in the language of my tasks. You know, like, like that's good, but you know, he's he's also understanding. You know, he's he's also talking about how, hey, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, th th this isn't just an optimizing process right now. You know, like there are benefits to being at certain levels of abstraction, and you know, like I, it is kind of revolutionary. You know, even in the sixties when he's writing this for managers to say, oh, well, let's actually try to separate these two things out, as opposed to just like saying, that, oh, you know, we've got this gentry class that you know, well, like, and part one of its features is that you know, like they get the wine and the cigars. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's, it's cool. Yeah, in a sense, he's moving past the uh, social division or the division of the social product that is implied or stated in Smith and Ricardo, right? Um, <laughs> where like their political economy like explicitly addresses the class structure of their time uh, and kind of says like, okay, given this class structure, what's the distribution that we end up with? Uh, he's kind of undermining that sort of uh, obviousness. Um, okay, Shane, and then, uh, Jeremy, we'll move on there. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's disaggregating control from power, right? Like, control is not the same as domination. Um, like, control is, is just regulation, like, in the technical sense. Um, and regulation is just a feature of the world. Like, it's a feature of reality. It happens at all scales. Um, so I, th I think, I mean, I, I mean, I used to be involved in a lot of anarchist organizing and stuff when I, was, when I was quite a bit younger. And something that really vexed me about that stuff and that kind of really brought me away from it was that people really couldn't disaggregate these things. Like, power relations are not 
identical to hierarchical structures, like structures of just general. So, I mean, like you think like fruit, citrus, orange, there is a hierarchy, but there's no power relations. Like the citrus doesn't have any power over oranges. Similarly, in your body, like there are cells inside your heart, but the heart doesn't like boss them around or anything like that. It, it, and so I think there's a big trap there, a huge a hole that people fall into, and I've seen them fall into it over and over again, where they identify like any kind of uh, regulation or organization with power relations. Like when they when they hear, uh, you know, some sort of some sort of structure that like demarcates you know, like levels of control, they instantly just envision the whip hand that's about to hit them. And so that's the end of that path is basically Ted Kaczynski primitivism, where you would prefer to destroy society entirely rather than than live with it. Um, so I think it is very, very important to disaggregate those concepts. Yeah, you kind of end up with that sort of like, you know, Uncle Ted or uh, like radical communizer sort of thinking um, uh, because of, yeah, an inability to think out of that problem. Uh, Jeremy, go ahead. So we haven't gotten there yet. But in chapter 14, the multi-node system five, he basically, I think it's one of the best satires of CEOs I've read, where basically it says, if you have a lone decision maker at the top, it's pretty much categorically impossible that they can have the right information to make decisions, even if they want to. They're basically fucked. And the only way to unfuck them is by creating so many interlocking networks that are highly, highly, highly redundant that that mesh makes the decision. But what that means is that nobody can really be the boss. What they can do is have a collective will to do System 5 functioning. And so this... um you know, in uh, Platform for Change, there's a part where he's talking about looking out the window and seeing hippies smoking weed in the park and says, these people think they're going to change the world, but I could take a team of managers, get them to learn my ideas, and they could change the world far more rapidly. And so you get a real sense of what he means by manager in this sense. You know, the idea is that the managers are all the cells in the multinode and that it's the multinodal decision-making system that's going to change things, not some bastard at the top who barks orders into a telecom system. Right. So the hippies tried to do the march through the institutions uh but you know we got the worst timeline where <laughs> they went in without a strategy or just a new left strategy and got their heads handed to them um okay so uh hopefully we can do better uh <laughs> uh but i i do appreciate this mention of the multi-node because that could be a good steering concept for us to go forward uh so that brings us to part two um I'm just checking our time here. 
Okay, we've got half an hour left, so let's uh, pick up the pace of the bit. Um, before beginning the analysis of part two, it would be an excellent plan to read once again the summary beginning part one. Done. No, uh, we can now we can't read it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's go back. It's, it's, it's a bad loop. <laughs> it's a go to part one. We get to part two, go to part one. <laughs> you never finish the book. Um, all right. <laughs> uh, all right. We can now start talking the talk. The object is to construct a model of the organization of any viable system. The firm is something organic which intends to survive, and that is why I call it a viable system. There are many examples of such systems in nature, yet instead of using any of those, which are known to work as models of the firm, we try to use organization charts that are really devices for portioning blame when something goes wrong. They specify responsibility and the chain of command instead of the machinery that makes the firm tick. The problem, this, uh, sorry, the problem is discussed at the outset, chapter six, as is the very nature of a model. Models are more than analogies. They are meant to disclose the key structure of the system under study. So if we want to understand the principles of viability, we had better use a known to be viable system as a model. And that is why part two embarks on an account of the way the human body is organized and controlled by its nervous system. We could have used another viable system, such as the amoeba or a whole animal species as the model. The results are the same as they must be if viability as such has its own laws and enshrines its own principles as cyberneticians contend. But the human body is perhaps the richest and most flexible viable system of all. Besides, there is an extra advantage. All of us have bodies and inevitably we have a good deal of insight into their characteristics. Most people know little, however, about how it all happens. For that reason, there has to be quite a lot of explanation about the physiology of the nervous system. You can see why I'm not too embarrassed about putting this forward. After all, any human being is likely to find his own neurophysiology interesting, whether he is studying management or not. You will find, though, that this book continuously compares the unfolding story of corporate regulation in the body with its manifestations in the firm. The process begins in chapter seven. So chapter six and chapter seven. Chapter six um, kind of gets at what we are doing here, uh, what viability is, uh, and what kinds of models we might want to use. Um, are, was there any sort of points there? Uh, I see uh, Joe, have your hand up. Um, yeah. You're, you're breaking up, Joe. Seems a bit better now, I think. Okay. Seems a bit better, yeah. Um, I'm not sure about, like, a whole species. That seems like, I don't know, um, somewhere in the Discord, somebody mentioned the difference between um, autopoiesis and, I think it was, ecopoiesis. It seems like... I don't know, maybe maybe they're both viable systems, but there seems to be a lot of differences between them as well. Yes, definitely. Um, I, again, the viability is determined in terms of the system under question, right? So if you're considering the species in terms of the reproduction of the species, that could be a viable system. But it's not viable in exactly the same way as the individual's 
of that species are viable. They have their own organization um, because, you know, it's the species is inherently social in a way that, you know, individuals are somewhat less so. But nonetheless, if the species is to survive, you you do need some kind of viability at the species level. <laughs> uh, so yeah, again, that's that's separating out the mountain, the the layers of uh, of of analysis and what you're exactly looking for. Um, I think we talked about in the discussion something like uh, Bain Capital, which can just like devour its consistent uh, 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 constituent parts. Uh, in the pursuit of its own viability. But obviously that doesn't create viability for the firms that Bain Capital takes over. Um, it, it's, it's not designed to do that. Um, so I think that that's a major point there. Um, another one that was brought up in the, the chapter itself, chapter six, was ecologies. Uh, uh, and Beer sort of says they don't have enough. They're too swingy and they don't have enough forethought to be as good of an example as, as a human. Um, and again, like I'm skeptical that humans really are the best example, but I can kind of buy what Beer is saying about how we have intuition about our own bodies. That's useful in understanding what's going on. Um, uh, I think there's probably viable systems we're just not really conscious of. Uh, that are probably better at doing stuff than we are. Uh, just, just, just a guess, you know. Uh, uh, Jake P, go ahead. I would love to see someone from this group or someone adjacent to it do like a breakdown on the level that beer does of the body, like on the level of like, I don't know, like a party or something like that. Something like a lot more familiar. And I'm sure he does it in his other books, right? Um, but. Yeah, <laughs> like things with multiple people, maybe with competing interests, um, you know, maybe with, you know, competing interests outside the system, which obviously the human body also has, but things that are more imminently graspable, I guess. Sure, right. There, there's something counterintuitive, right? Like that we have some intuitions about the functioning of our own body. We have our experiences with the functioning of our own body. Um, but the physiology is so alien to us that paradoxically it actually becomes harder to understand than organizational examples. Right. So, um, I don't, you know, there's, there's problems with beer's approach to instruction here because I've definitely seen that like, yeah, when you get into the nitty gritty of the physiology, it's actually harder to understand, uh, than, than the, the organizational examples. Uh, Still valuable stuff there, but I, I don't think it's I don't think his betting on people's intuition is really quite as effective as he hoped it would be. Um, uh, Brett and then Matt. Well, another thing to consider is that I don't think it's really necessarily just the human body that's viable. It's, it's all of humanity, like over time, because humans die out really quickly sometimes. Right. Like that's just a genetic thing where you get an or you just die. <laughs> like that happens. So I don't think, and that's not and super non-intuitive, and that sort of goes talking to two more about the social stuff that socialist stuff that we're talking about in terms of like how to do hormone organization in a way that is viable. Right, right, um, yeah, and you know, if we talk about like a problematic like the Anthropocene or the capitalist scene, we need to think about viability beyond even the human species, 
uh, just to ensure the viability of the human species. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> uh, Joe, go ahead. and or Sorry, uh, Matt, uh, then Joe. I, 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 I think part of why he goes to the biology, though, is, is just that, like, uh, you know, like, like, uh, um, your, your, your physiology actually is like, uh, um, you know, a, cer- a certain level of viable and, you know, like honed over, you know, uh, however many millennia. And uh, I'm pretty sure beer thinks like the overwhelming majority of organizations are really just non-viable, but like, you know, they, they're, they're big enough that they, uh, you know, the process of them dying just like happens on a time scale that like, you know, like, you know, they, they, uh, you know, a non-viable company can still take a couple of years to, 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 to actually dissolve. So, you know, I, I think beer thinks that, like, most human organizations just aren't, uh, you know, just aren't anywhere nearly as viable than biological ones. Yeah, I mean, they might be hyper-stable in the way that he discusses in Platform for Change, uh, but I think he's ultimately skeptical about the viability of our social form as a whole, uh, including the organizational forms we have. So that sort of... Thinking from the point of view of of, of, of civilizational crisis or uh, social crisis, uh, I guess, you know, it's exactly as you said, Matt, he, he has a certain degree of faith in uh, the proving grounds of evolution and what that has given us. Um, OK, uh, let's let's move on then. Um Chapter eight, the story by chapter eight, the story is developing. Well, we are dealing with one of the most vexed questions in modern management, the topic of autonomy. If a division of the firm were really and truly autonomous, it would not be part of the firm at all. In the same way, if the heart or the liver were really and truly autonomous, they might decide to renegue on the body. On the other hand, if the heart and liver were uh, not more or less autonomous, we would have to remember to tell them what to do all the time, and we would be dead in 10 minutes. In the same way, if a division of the firm is not more or less autonomous, the main board has to run it directly, which is equally impossible. Besides, the divisional staff would resign. The body has understood this dilemma for several hundred thousand years, and we can learn from it. Its solution is called the autonomous nervous system, appropriately enough. Uh, By the end of chapter 9, we shall have seen how it works, and we shall also have worked out its relevance to the management task. Three vital systems are identified as prerequisites of all autonomous control. Um, Okay, so we're we're dealing here with uh, autonomy versus versus cohesion, um, and we're dealing here with the way in which the human body deals with this problem. Uh, Jeremy, go ahead. So we're seeing this in real time right now with the New York Police Department, where the NYPD, is it part of the city of New York? Is it an autonomous part of the city of New York? It's exerting levels of autonomy that are absolutely unsustainable. Like, it, it will not obey the system it sits in in any way, which would make it autonomous. But if it's autonomous, then it shouldn't be receiving funds from the system. So it's turning full-on parasitical, where it sucks major resources out of the system, but doesn't obey the dictates of that system. And 
and we're just watching it spiral out of control. And its response is to get more and more violent and to extend that violence to more and more of the citizenry it historically had left exempt from its reign of violence. Right. right. Um, exactly. It's it's really only got like uh, one strategy. <laughs> uh, and it's just it's just putting that into hyperdrive um, and, 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 and pursuing its corporate interest over the interest of the U.S. state as a whole, because uh, originally what's it, horrifying about it is it's doing it with the compliance of the mayor and the governor because they're very clearly fucking terrified of these psychos. Like, they, the mayor's daughter has been doxxed by the cops. There is the police union openly threatens the mayor on Twitter, and yet they continue to sort of barf these apologetics for the police in a way that's completely insane. Uh, yeah, it reminds me of going back to Japanese history. Uh, where the bushi or the samurai uh, took over state functions from the imperial governance structure uh, when they were originally created to defend that structure. Um, so, yeah, we're seeing a kind of similar problematic happen here. Uh, uh, Jake, H, and then Rudy? Um, yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with all that. I think... Like, it's interesting. It's sort of like um, autonomy as, like, kind of a spectrum. Like, you can be autonomous within bounds that allow it to still function as part of the whole system, which is, I think, what Beer is talking about, if I'm not wrong. Um, and so I guess it's, it's just interesting to think of, like, what are those, what do those bounds look like and how, like, how can you still allow for, I mean, I guess it's like having a system with enough requisite variety to, like, allow for those kind of testing of the bounds or not testing, but, like, um, expansion of function, but still staying within the bounds of like, you're still part of a functioning system, um, which clearly like that. Yeah. The NYPD is not, not doing, I mean, I guess, I guess it could depend on what your, uh, what your view is of like the function of the system, right? If you view it as, uh, protecting capital, then like, yeah, okay. It's kind of working within the bounds of that. I mean, it's not doing it in the best way. It's not the most effective way probably, but you know, it's still trying to protect capital and stuff. Um, and I agree, like they don't really seem to have any methods besides just horrendous violence um i think i also saw that something like some leaked chats or private emails or something from nypd officers like where they literally like threatened to kill like de blasio like they were just like we should just kill him something to that effect which is just wild um and uh but yeah yeah it's just it's just uh i definitely like his ideas of autonomy and like permitting autonomy which is i think the whole point of like the, the idea of like the system one being basically given as much autonomy as necessary. Um, and just like the linking up of that with the rest of the system as like a way to prevent it from being that top down kind of like wait until the boss tells you what to do kind of thing, which is horribly inefficient. Right. And, uh, one thing that comes out of this, these chapters from what I remember is that you need to have systems that are balanced against each other, um, in order for this to operate. And that kind of feeds into the idea of the multi-node, right? Like the multi-node is not unitary. Um, it's performing 
a, a unitary function or, or an integral function, uh, but it, it, it's not unitary in itself. And like, if you look at the brain, we have all those different uh, suborgans that are operating in co concert with each other through sort of like uh, semi-cooperative, semi-antagonistic functions. Um, uh, Rudy, let's go to you. Yeah, I keep thinking about this because I remember one time we had a discussion and somebody told me that racism is necessary for American capitalism, but racism goes much further than American capitalism would like it to go. And like the police is just a manifestation of this in some ways. And, you know, when is like, I guess the idea of a counterbounding force is capitalism has to somehow develop a counterbounding force to the police or the police will just destroy the whole system. This is a very interesting thought. Like following on Kyle was saying. Yeah, there are, there are ways in which uh, racism actually works against the logic of, of capital accumulation when it gets excessive, right? Um, so uh, you could look at, you know, the Civil War as an example of that. Uh, you could look at affirmative action um, as like a countervailing force that was set up within the system. You can look at the way in which the Supreme Court became activist uh, and it, for a brief period of time to try to address this problem. Um, all, all kinds of things. Uh, but, you know, clearly it ain't working right now. Um, it hasn't been for some time. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, it, it's un, it's unwilling to do the kind of inhibi inhibition that would be necessary to kind of restore balance, right? Like, and there's something about these um, degenerated neoliberal states that are because because the the state has been lobotomized so badly, it's it's really not able to keep any of its stuff under control. So the excitatory circuits uh, just take over and then they go nuts, right? Um, and yeah, I mean, it just it, it finds itself in a position of like losing control of something that was instrumentally useful before, but like now they don't even they don't even have the cognitive framework in which to think about inhibiting this stuff because like it, it's 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 impossible to entertain the possibility of even disciplining the police, let alone disbanding them. Like that just shows you how far that stuff is melted down. It's like you can't you can't even think about fucking slapping these on the wrist at least. You know that if if that's not entertainable, there's no fucking chance they'll ever get them under control. You know. So that, 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 like, the whole thing of, like, oh, give me as much oxygen as possible, or oh, shit, oxygen's dangerous, right? Like, and that's the kind of dynamic equilibrium that balances oxygen levels. The, the one that keeps it down is gone, and it's, it's just oxygen fucking poisoning and flooding, flooding the rest of the system because the lungs love to fucking pump oxygen, you know? That's what they want to do. So that's what the autonomous system of the respiratory system wants to do. But the, the counterbalancing forces are just not there. It's the payoff of a, of a really reprehensible investment in this kind of stuff in the, the, the early early capitalist states, right? They were able to use this kind of stuff to, to, to bootstrap themselves and it's like, oh, yeah, it's the solid days now. We've got all these, these shitty cops keeping, uh, keeping everyone in line. But then it's like, no, oh, no, the cops are going to kill you now. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's numerous historical examples we could point to of that, but, uh, um, what's one we're in now? Uh, yeah. Uh, let's go to, uh, third creed. It's sort of tangential. So if we're in a, if we're in a crunch for time, we can just skip it. What do you think? 
Uh, we may want to skip it then, because um, yeah. we've got what we we just have to cover chapter ten, right? And then we're done for the recap. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so so we'll just we'll talk about chapter ten. If we have time. We'll come back. We got ten minutes left. So um, in, in part two, uh, cybernetics is. Or sorry, in the final chapter, 10 of this part, the need for a system 4 is disclosed. Systems 1, 2, and 3 are concerned automatically with the regulation of internal stability. But the organism needs also to maintain dynamic equilibrium with the external world. More than that, if the challenge of change and increasing complexity discussed in part 1 is to be met, there must be systems for arousal and adaptation. All this is modeled by the brain before the level of conscious direction attributable to the board of the firm and to the cerebral cortex of the brain is reached. That final level, System 5, is reserved for discussion later. Um, so uh, here we had the uh, discussion of uh, System 3 as inherently sleepy, um, <laughs> basically inhibiting or filtering a lot of information from system four, uh, and system five, and then system four, uh, and system five kind of doing arousal to check in, um, and to, to act on an emergency program, uh, when necessary. Um, uh, so I think those were the core points of chapter 10, uh, were there any others that, like, you know, people remember, they like to bring up, or, uh, uh, yeah, or we can go to Third Creed's point. Um, yeah, uh, Third Creed, what, what were you going to bring up there? <laughs> I was just going to, I was just thinking about, like, how, like, what I used to think of as sort of cultural hegemony is sort of um, how this is used how okay? So how people have struggled so struggle so hard to understand the systems that they're contained within? It's because they exist entirely within a meta language that was prepared for them to think only in that particular system, and there's a bunch of people with a bunch of different ones of these, and uh, there's no sort of overarching vocabulary to talk to every single person. So just kind of like that sort of like hegemony of language actually being like injected into, yeah, injected into the meta language of you. So that like, if you're a cop, like you have sort of a set of ideas, narratives and symbols of like, Oh, the the brotherhood and like the fraternal order and all this. And, uh, in, in the boys in blue and the blue line. And you have all this, like some, these symbols that are made to make you do your job without understanding really even what the outcome of it is. You see yourself doing the violence and you get the carrot or you tell on the co- other cops and you get the stick. And that just kind of trains you to do the thing you're doing. And, and it's just a bunch of people doing this. And that that's more like the structure of like hegemony. It's not like a single ideology permeating the entire structure. It's a bunch of different like cooperating uh, meta languages that like, uh, I don't know. It just occurred to me, uh, this week, I was thinking about some things I saw, and I, I know it's sort of tangential, but 
No, no, like I think we 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 didn't really dig into that idea of meta languages too much in this review, uh, but that is certainly relevant. And like you know, we can kind of see like Marxism as like an attempt to develop a meta language for the proletariat for itself, right? Um, it's it's breaking with uh, the sort of limits of of what is uh, available to the proletariat as workers. Um, uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, this this stuff is very important. Actually, it's, it's not even really a tangent because um, I think this this relates to the conditioning that Alga denotes go under go under, right? Like the, the general training of how to respond because this does relate to the autonomy point, right? Like um, in I think it's in Heart of the Enterprise, Beer uses the example of the the traffic laws and the the rules of traffic. So in general, the traffic system you want to control for uh, you know divergences from the road. Ideally, the the ideal homeostasis is where every vehicle goes where it needs to, and none of them crash. Right? That's the that's the invariant you want to hold. Now, you could centralize the whole thing and have every position and velocity of every vehicle be calculated centrally, but it's completely in, in, infeasible. So what you do instead is you get intelligent agents, people, to drive the cars, and you give them relatively simple instructions. You train them how to do things on your behalf locally in such a way that adds up to something global. So the rules of the road are system two and three in that in that example, right? And it's similar, right? Like if you want to oppress people, you can go around you could go around with a clipboard and fucking oppress every single one of them individually. Or you could get intelligent agents, cops, and give them very vague and simple instructions about how to do your will locally on your behalf. And that that is really important. That's the up-down kind of loop of a lower system being trained by a higher system to carry out instructions on behalf of the higher system without full intervention because you you can't you can't like have you know you can't have the probe go into every cop's head you ha you have to allow them to do their own thing and the best way to do it is kind of train them to be shitheads in general if you if you want a ghastly outcome train them to be ghastly people in general and then they'll just it'll all work itself out from there you know it's really really relevant stuff yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the same way you train a guard dog, right? Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and guard dogs typically very nasty because <laughs> of the abuse they've suffered. Um, <laughs> uh, all right. So um, uh, in part two, cybernetics is put to work to create a model of the management of any viable system. There are passages of fairly tough going as the nature and the implications of some of the neurophysiology are elucidated. But remember that once the issues are properly understood, there will be no real need to remember all the details. Uh, so let's bear that in mind uh, as we go into part three. Uh, yeah, um, glossary is there for our help if we need it. Uh, so thank you, everyone, for participating in this review. Uh, next time we will move on to part three. Uh, of chapter 11 and uh, I'll see you then wonderful thanks everyone bye bye thanks everyone